Does privacy exist anymore, or are humans just sets of data to be traded and sold? Wendy Wong is a Canadian political scientist best known for her award-winning books, Internal Affairs, How the Structure of NGOs Transforms Human Rights, and The Authority Trap, Strategic Choices of International NGOs. She is a professor and principals research chair at the University of British Columbia's Okanagan's Department of Economics, Philosophy, and Political Science. Her most recent book, We the Data, Human Rights in the Digital Age, was released in 2023. Wendy Wong, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. We're speaking today about your newly published book, We the Data, Human Rights in the Digital Age, which could not be more apt as we see in the news every day, something else that we didn't know about the collection of our data or the governance of AI. It's really a rapidly evolving landscape as you uh, illuminate in your book, and we have to consider how our human rights are being neglected or abused. We don't even realize how our data is being used. But first, before we dive into the conversation, you've selected a passage to share with our listeners. Yeah, so this passage is about what happens to data after we die. And it really plays on the theme where once data about us are created, they're effectively forever because we don't actually know what can happen to them or where they go. So this is an illustrative example from the chapter called, Do You Need Human Rights When You're Dead? In 2015, Roman Mazarenko was hit and killed by a car in Moscow. He died young, just on the precipice of something new. Eugene and Koida met him when they were both coming of age. They became close friends through the fast life of fabulous parties in Moscow. They also shared an entrepreneurial spirit, supporting one another's tech startup. Mazarenko led a vibrant life. His death left a huge hole in the lives of those he touched. In Greece, Koida led a project to build a tech bot based on an open source machine learning algorithm, which she trained on text messages she collected from Mazarenko's family, friends, and her own exchanges with Mazarenko during his life. The bot learned to be Mazarenko using his own word. The data Mazarenko created in life could now continue as himself in death. Mazarenko did not have the opportunity to consent to the ways in which data about him were used posthumously. The data were brought back to life by loved ones. Can we say that there was harm done to the dead or his memory? This act was at least the denial of autonomy. When we're alive, we're autonomous and move through the world under our own will. When we die, we no longer move bodily through the world. According to conventional thinking, that loss of our autonomy also means the loss of our human rights. But can't we still decide, while living, what to do with our artifacts when we're gone? After all, we have designed institutions to ensure that the transaction of bequeathing money or objects happens through defined legal processes. It's straightforward to see if a bank account balance has gotten bigger or whose name ends up on a property deed. These are things that we transfer to the living. With data about us after we die, this gets complicated. These data are us which is different from our possession. What if we don't want to appear posthumously in text, image, or voice? Kaida reconstructed her friend through texts he exchanged with her and others. There's no way to stop someone from deploying these kinds of data once we're dead. But what would Mazarenko have wanted? Indeed, yeah, we can't. And yet all these predictions about our behavior, about who we are, how we're defined, it's so strange. As you point out in the book, there's these data points, which we've always collected different kinds of data, but it was very analog. This is so intense and, and the amount of data, but they're not how we would necessarily define ourselves. We get clumped into these groups and I don't even know how they're sold. On this point, I don't know what your reflections are of how you would want your data to be treated. I feel that was born of affection, but the other side of that is it's being monetized. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the most troubling thing from a human rights perspective is that we don't have a real way to prevent malicious action on data about us, as opposed to, you know, what this particular friendship really describes. It's something to commemorate a friend who was killed very prematurely. And I think there are a lot of different products out there that really straddle this line. But there are also other technologies out there that actually don't really require that there's any sort of personal connection in life for this to happen. So there are ways to resurrect someone, so to speak, using data they generated throughout their life. And you know, you can bring them back in ways that they may not have agreed with. And so one of the things I think is problematic in this whole situation is not just the autonomy that I talked about in that passage, but also how we treat human beings with dignity as though we're beings with worth. And so if we can take 
the data that describe our activities in life and use them to create digital alternatives or digital resurrections. What does that really mean about how we think about what that person did in life and how we can treat that person once they're gone? So there's a lot of different questions here. One of the other themes of this particular chapter is this idea of discretion and choice, which goes back to autonomy. So as human beings, we have discretion over how we interact with people. I mean, think about this in, in real life, right, Mia? Like we don't talk to police the same way we would talk to our friends. And that's because we're exercising discretion, even though we're the same person. What all these data out there about us do is it effectively eliminates our ability to exercise discretion if someone did choose to bring us back, so to speak, using data that really describe a lot of what we did when we were living. Yeah, the discretion. I want to get into the differences in the new governance that's being proposed. Europe has been on top of that a little bit longer and America coming on board with Biden's executive order. But the way the data is being used, it's being monetized. As we know, it's, as you point out, Meta has a reach of four billion larger than any country and how they're using this data. On, on, on another point, and as I know, because you're coming from a background in political science, governments could use this data. We've seen recently with Cambridge Analytics how elections can be nudged and we can be given another set of facts that might appeal to us or might make us think differently. Facts themselves, we can't agree on facts. Right. Traditionally, human rights apply to the relationship between states and individuals. So we're used to thinking about rights in a context where we think states are abusing the rights of people. And that happens with data. We know that governments are using firms like Palantir and others that provide security services and the types of data that would help governments track and survey different people that they might find problematic or would like to know a little bit more about their activities. So we know that's happening. But I think, as you pointed out, the broader problem that we aren't thinking as hard about because it's so brand new, think about AI really entering the market and having the ability to affect us. It's not that long. It's 20 years or less we're talking about because the amount of data to make AI effective simply wasn't available until, until the 2000s. So in that sense, it's not a surprise we don't think about the governing power of big tech. We think about the governing power of states all the time. And big tech isn't governing us the same way that states do, right? So it's about exercising force, coercion. It's trying to corral certain types of activities and prevent them. With big tech, the way they govern, first of all, they're very, very rich. They're economically very powerful actors. And that's what a lot of people recognize. And that's true. But I think in the book, what I'm trying to talk about, and this is the chapter on big tech, is that not only are they governing because they're making decisions because they're rich and very powerful economically, but they're created products that really shape our behavior. If we think about governance as creating shared expectations and setting the rules and enforcing the rules, which is really what we are talking about when we talk about what government do, governing is about exactly that activity. You can think about all the platforms you interact with, whether it's social media platforms, for example, or you think about the way that Google search structures our ability to access information, the way Microsoft products are designed to give us information in certain ways. These are really pervasive products and platforms in our lives. And we've learned as human beings to sort of exist in these platforms. We are governed by them. And by effect, because the companies that produce these platforms are really interested in collecting data about us and our, our behavior, we are being governed in that way as well through their propensity to collect and analyze data about human behavior. Yes, they know so much more about us than most governments would ever collect in any census. That's right. It's also troubling because they say things like, and you pointed to this difference, oh, we respect your privacy. That's one thing I heard. Another way they phrase it is we value your privacy, which I listen and hear is we put a value on your privacy so much so we sell it to others. <laughs> but the other thing is that they often say that they're agnostic. So when we speak about the neuroplasticity of children, we know is being formed in our young minds. And when they're giving technology at a young age and becoming addicted and the dopamine hits and all these things. And then they say, oh, we're kind of agnostic about it. We don't really care. Some have been so open. We kind of know that there was an issue 
we don't let our own children have access so early because we have seen the data. But you're free to do this. This is capitalism. That's troubling because a government has certain responsibilities and the corporations don't have that sense. It's a free-for-all sort of thing. That's exactly right. And that's why I argue in the big tech chapter, if we continue making states responsible for human rights and businesses just have to, quote, respect human rights, we're going to run into some real problems because, as you point out, they're reaching far more people than any government does. I, I like to say, you know, the numbers for, uh, vary between three and four billion people that they reach through their platforms, right? No matter which number you pick, that's way more people than any government legitimately could claim govern. And yet this one company with four major platforms that many of us use is able to reach so many people and make decisions about content and access that have real consequences. It's been shown they've fueled genocide in, in multiple places now in Ethiopia and in Myanmar. I think this is really important to recognize that big tech is out there doing things that we probably associate most with government, but we're not giving them the same responsibility. And I think that's exactly why human rights matter, because human rights are obligations that states have signed on for. And they're supposed to protect. There are dozens and dozens of human rights out there at the international level through the United Nations system. But in the book, I really talk about four human rights values. So I'm not talking about specific rights like freedom of expression or privacy per se. I think there's a lot of work out there that is discussing that. What I want to foreground for people is we should be thinking about how data about our most mundane activities is changing how we think about human rights values like dignity. So we started talking about data and death. That was not a question people had 20 years ago. How does that affect dignity? How does that affect autonomy? How does that affect how we think about who belongs in the human community? Another human rights value, you know, to think about us as individuals within a greater collective. And the last human rights value that's really important is this idea of equality, that we have to be treated according to the same standards. These are four values that underpin the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That is a major statement of human rights after World War II. And it is the document that really made human rights universal so everyone can claim them and that they're interdependent and it created entitlements for people, right? This is not just it's nice to have these rights. You actually are entitled to them because they protect something about human potential. It's important to point that all out. You brought up this idea of privacy. I think a lot of people talk about privacy in the context of AI data and of data in particular. My worry about that concept and how it's become so predominant in the way that we talk about AI data, including in the White House executive order, is that it really assumes that the data collection about all of our most mundane everyday activities is okay if we can protect the privacy of the individuals from which they came. And I think actually from a human rights perspective, it's important to argue that we shouldn't be collecting certain types of data because it's excessive. It starts violating autonomy. It starts violating dignity. And when you start violating autonomy and dignity through the collection of data, you can't just go back and fix that by making it private. Because first of all, we know that all data out there are vulnerable to these high push faults that we seem to read about all the time. But also thinking about privacy in an age of data is really challenging because we are engaging with other people socially and politically in these digital platforms, which have been collecting a lot of data, but also that we are voluntarily doing this. A lot of the activities that are being recorded and data are things we choose to do. We choose to take our cell phones with us. We choose to buy products like a ring doorbell or other smart doorbells that collect audio and visual data. These are choices. And so it becomes pretty difficult to think about maintaining privacy in the same way that I think we've gotten used to in the analog world. Indeed. And often that's trade-off. You mentioned security, the trade-off where we feel like, oh, we're giving up this freedom or this autonomy in lieu of security because we feel like to share that information that makes us more secure. You mentioned highlighting the different roles of governments and these large corporations. But of course, a lot of big tech, a lot of these inventions started off as military applications that then became elaborated by uh, private corporations. It's not exactly on the point of the, the data that you're addressing in the book, but we see applications, uh, and I'm not sure how it will be accurately re reported, the application of AI military operations that are run or aided by AI. So we have to be very careful to, to make sure that this data that's collected is accurate because we know how 
quickly AI works. And also on that point of influencing elections, this Cambridge Analytics, and I don't know who else, how it's going to be applied in the future. In considering, it's not just for commercial purposes, right? As of mm-hmm. August this year, 19 of the largest digital platforms in Europe are now subject to the Digital Services Act, which is designed to get rid of non-transparent practices and take illegal content off social media, search engines, and other major websites. And in America, the executive order. But up until a few weeks ago, no one was bothering in the U.S., particularly to put up guardrails. Do you think that leaving it this way for almost 20 years was wrong? To say it's wrong or right, I think is casting a moral judgment that we probably couldn't have had even 10 years ago. There's just no way to think about the rightness or wrongness of actions when you don't think about the consequences in advance. And I think one of the real issues is that AI has really, and for good reason, of course, really developed as a very technical field. And of course it is because AI needs three things. It needs compute, it needs algorithms, and it needs data. And an algorithm are being developed by very specialized, highly trained people who know how to write the code and who, who know how to think about how to get the most insight out of the data. The problem, though, with AI, unlike other computer applications, is that at least the way we use AI is that it depends on data, but not just any old data, data about people, data taken from people. And I think that's really the key. I don't think we thought about that. I don't think the creators of AI then and today are placing the same amount of emphasis on the humanity in those data that I, as a social scientist, do. And the reason is because as a social scientist, I had never not dealt with data that didn't come from people. In my past work, I've written about how NGOs have lobbied and advocated for social and political change at the international level. That requires talking to people. That means I have to go through a very onerous ethical process at the university level to consider every single facet of what could happen to those data, what could happen to the people whose data I'm taking through interviews, for example, if the data got out, right? What are you going to do to safeguard those data? How do you secure consent? How do people de-consent? How do they take themselves out of your study if during the interview they decide they don't agree with you anymore or they don't want to be part of the study? These are all things that we think about working with human subjects. And I think that kind of perspective is really important when we think about the applications of AI. AI doesn't have to use data from people. You can use astronomical data. You can use data about butterflies. You can use data about whatever. But I think, yes, some of the most important advances we're making in terms of creating generative AI that can draw and write like a human being or can make predictions about cancer, those require data from people. But the problem is a lot of companies out there, not health workers, I think people working in health definitely have to think about, you know, the implications of using data from people. But people working at these companies that are scraping the internet to create really effective chatbots, they're not thinking about the fact that these data are coming from people and from their creative processes until recently when now there are all these copyright suits being brought against uh, generative AI companies using large language models. I think the whole mindset around data has been very much about accuracy. That's the other thing I would say is that there's no data out there that are 100% accurate because all data sets reflect some kind of bias because data don't exist in nature. Somebody has to go out there and say, I want to collect information about trees or how quickly people read uh, a newspaper article online, and then they go and they collect those data. But until someone has decided, hey, I'm going to go collect, those data don't exist. Depending on the data collector's perspective, the data are going to look very different. And, and I think that's what we mean by bias, is that no matter what, any data that exists in the world needed somebody to come up with some criteria to choose what to put into the data, and therefore is going to be biased. Indeed. You mentioned uh, genocides, and I just think about historically how many genocides occurred because no one was collecting that as data. It was almost like they're not qualified as human beings. Thankfully, we're collecting more data on that note. The, The possibility of ethical AI, I feel firmly that the humanities should be part of this design process, not just the aftermath. I feel like being involved in the design process so that the technology isn't designed 
just to suit the needs of technologists. It's all of us citizens, all of us users. And now we've have seen with OpenAI with the aftermath of the firing and rehiring of the co-founder, CEO uh, Sam Altman. I, I'm, not, I'm still trying to gain perspective on what this all means, but what are your thoughts on that? I, I don't know if I can comment on that specific instance. I think what's really fascinating about that case, first of all, that we know so much about the internal dynamics of OpenAI, but I also think just given the relationship that came to light between Microsoft and OpenAI, I think what's really interesting to me is that as much as we want to talk about AI being this super fantastic development for humans, and possibly if you believe some of the doomsayers, it could potentially eliminate or overtake humanity. It's still a very human process. These disputes took place between human beings. It's about power. It's about money. It's about ambition, whatever it's about. And I think we're still learning as details emerge and as decisions are finalized. But I think what was really important, and Amy Webb pointed this out recently, it's really a management issue, right? And management is very much a human and social capacity. I think that's what's come to light in this conflict with open AI is that the humans really matter. I think that's what I'm trying to capture in the book, too, is that humans and the human rights that humans have are really key to the future of AI. Indeed. And I think that we often think of it as a top down. I think a part of this issue that they had was the prediction or the possibility that we'll have super intelligence within a decade. And that scares me without proper guardrails. Um, but we think about, oh, it's just out there. What is AI going to do? As though it was this entity that wasn't owned by companies and people who own those companies. We have to think that we have those reins. So a part of strengthening those reins, what are the key things that we should be doing first? I like this. what you're saying makes me think one of the things we need to remember is that AI is not inevitable. It hasn't always existed. It, it you know, began as a project in the mid-20th century, but really only came into this very uh, accelerated phase quite recently. It's not inevitable. There are choices that have to be made. So you pointed out the legislation and some of the regulatory efforts that have been made. I think that's right. That is one way to reshape how AI will turn out in the end. But I also think things have changed so quickly. And one of the things that we need to remember is that we are data stakeholders and we are not data subjects. We're often called data subjects. If you look at the way legislation is written, if you look at the way tech companies talk about the users of their technology, we're data subjects. Being a subject means that you're being acted upon. And I think that it's true, but it also casts this sort of you can't help but have this happen to you effect. And I, I want to point out, and I do point out in the book, we're actually data stakeholders for the reason that data cannot be created without us. We're half the equation. This is what I call co-creation in the book. You need a data collector who's interested in data, but you need a data source that actually provides the basis for which the data are collected. Without either a source or a collector, there's no data about people. I think we need to remember that we are at least half the equation there, that we are actually really important. We have a stake in the datafication process. We have a stake in the AI creation and deployment process. Now, on the one hand, it seems like a very small shift. On the other hand, language matters and mindset matters. And so if you are a data stakeholder, that means that you should be more involved. This doesn't have to happen, right? Yes, the terms and conditions right now exist in a way that disempower us as data sources, but that's not inevitable. That's also regulable. I think that's one way to start. And the other way that I think policymakers really need to turn is to facilitate data literacy. Data literacy fits into the broader idea of digital literacy, which is just figuring out what the heck is going on in our digital world. Data literacy is really important because being literate is about being competent, being able to function in society, to get what you want and not to be fooled. That's why we read and we write, because we can communicate with others clearly and we know what to expect. If we have a contract, for example, same thing with math. You do math because when you have a transaction in the market, you want to make sure that the numbers add up. We need data literacy because it's becoming very clear that data intensive technology is not going anywhere. And many of us actually lack the understanding of what it means to datafy, not just creating digital data, but creating data in general, learning more about what data are for, what kinds of decisions go into making any data set and why the biases of various data collectors is going to affect the output you get from data. What you ask of the data is really important. And also the quality of the data are really important for generating useful outcomes. I think those, that's a mindset, that's a skill set. We don't get taught very often in school explicitly. 
I think that has to happen globally. So every country has to figure out how they're going to do that. But especially for democracy, if you don't teach people about the importance of data and why the algorithm is just spitting out statistical inferences, then AI seems way more mysterious than it should be. And I think that's really important for facilitating stakeholdership, but also for people to get a, a grasp around AI is not magic. AI is a human-created artifact or set of artifacts. And in order to live to our full human potential, in order to exercise human rights, we're going to have data literacy. So in the book, I do argue that data literacy should be a part of the right to education, which already exists across a wide variety of documents and institutions. It's so true. Most of us know how to use our phones, but we don't really know how they're using us. And we have to understand, just like the food we eat, what goes into it, there has to be that transparency. And I think also on the point of the digital literacy and the future of education, what are your reflections on education and how we can incorporate more humanistic thinking, creativity, critical thinking, and what are the new tools that students need to skill up to a fast-moving future? When you were talking, I think the analogy right now is we've been given a car and told to just drive it. We don't have a real concept of what the car is as a mechanical device. We don't really understand and we don't have any rules of the road. And so that's why we have a lot of crashes. We have a lot of the equivalent of horrible accidents because people really don't know how to behave in this new world of data and and also a, a world of data mitigated by AI. That's the analogy that I like to use. So there are a lot of different ways to think about what kinds of skills. I think people need to be trained on thinking in terms of data. They need to make their own data set. That's one way to really quickly learn the types of decisions that go in and also the rigor. Data sets and reason we create data is to systematize our information about the world. You're not just collecting random facts. You try to collect all the facts about something. So if you're collecting data about trees, for example, what are you noting? What are you observing? What are the things you write down versus things you think, eh, we don't need to explain that or we don't need to think about that or some of the things we don't even know about to record about trees. So as knowledge expands, our data also get bigger in terms of the scope we want to collect information on. So I think it's really important to teach people how to think like a collector, how to think like a data scientist without being one but just thinking about how data could be manipulated. You mentioned devices. I think there's a lot of emphasis on literacy with digital devices because there are equity issues if some people have smartphones and other people don't, or some people have access to computers and the internet on a regular basis and other people don't. But I think that really has to come with a caution about our engagement right now with digital devices is very data intense. So the more you put out there, the more the machine knows about you. And that needs to be thought about in a very reflective way, not just, oh, it's, it's just the way it is. It's not. But I think the way we teach data literacy doesn't have to be high tech. I think it could actually be very low tech. I think, in fact, some ways analog data are, are the way to go just to, to get us in that mindset. But I also think teachers need to have the support too. We can't just focus on students. Teachers need support in teaching different methods and learning the material themselves because many of them did not age in a time when these were issues. The last thing I'll say is that most of us are not in a K through 12 situation. Many of us are adults. So how do we get access to data literacy? In the book and in general, when I think about social institutions that really have good reach and are accessible, it's libraries. It's a public library. It's an institution that has always facilitated access to information. Libraries are our original Google. They categorize and sort information and materials that we can act on later. And so they have incredible capacity for understanding how information is organized. But then also they're accessible, they're open. Many of them are offering programming to help people understand digital tools. They are the place that we can seek all kinds of different services. So libraries are a place to go. But they're also chronically underfunded and unappreciated. And I think one of the things that we need to learn to appreciate is that libraries are not analog. They're not just places for books and archives, maybe microfilm or whatever. It's also a place where the transition from analog to digital is very much part of how libraries themselves have to think about what they're doing in society. But in effect, they can help those of us in the community actually learn how to be part of the datafied reality. 
Yes, I love libraries. I grew up in libraries. They're temples of the imagination. And also because they are not drowning in data quite as much. It's as much about the search and you finding your own answers. So there's a critical space for deep analysis, which I think now this arise with all these new technologies, we've seen at the same time the decline of trusted news sources, the fourth estate. I try to go to trusted news sources, but I think we're lacking knowledge and uh, there's too much opinion and there's too much of this drama. I think on important issues, we have to be able to just have the information and some analysis and critical thinking, but not with this overexcited drama that really clouds issues. That's my opinion. What are your reflections on journalism and its future? Let me take a step back because I think you said something really important about the library as a resource. You say you go in there for reflection. And I think one of the great things about less targeted searches, right? So nowadays, this dynamic you're talking about with regard to drama or the way that everything seems to be an extreme is because the way we understand the world is being filtered through very narrow and very tailored algorithm extreme. It used to be that maybe you would go into the library and you're looking for a certain book, but then you found like five other books nearby that seem really fascinating. It's that sort of spontaneous realization and connection that often helps us think laterally and think, oh, I thought I was actually doing this, but I'm actually doing that or some combination of this and that. That's really where a lot of creativity ends up coming. It's like a random association. It's a random thing you read that you make links to that may not actually show up in a very narrowly tailored search that depends on what you previously did, because this is a totally new finding that would not be predicted to be an outcome. So I think that's one thing. I think the future of journalism is very much tied to the future of democratic discourse. I don't think that those are disconnected. I think that in a lot of ways, what has happened is that the sort of journalistic ethics that used to guide that field have eroded in importance, which I think it tells us a little bit about what's going to happen with regard to social media and thinking about how we rebuild trust, but also gives us insight into how newspapers were not a very highly regulated field before. If you look at the history of journalism, and I'm just starting to, to actually research this myself because it's been one of those things I put off till the, I finished the book. But one of the things that I think is really fascinating is that the development of ethics in journalism is relatively recent with the rise of journalism schools. Those really professionalized the field and made it such that we developed these sort of journalism as a trusted institution and therefore we trust different sources. That's a, a step that we have to think about. And so I think with regard to your question, it is exactly that, is that right now social media has disrupted the sources of trust we used to have for certain sources or certain uh, outlets and maybe has created some in their place. But I also think that at some point, people are going to realize that they're not getting as good of information as they might think. And so the types of sources that will arise as a result of that process, is not any academic forte, but also I do think it's useful to think about the history of journalism as a way to think about the future of social media. I was wondering why you chose to approach the issue of data collection from the lens of political science and maybe how this approach differs from a more technical perspective or a computer science perspective on the topic. I think that's a great question. Usually when I give public talks, I give a little spiel about how this project started. I think one of the things I found missing when I first started learning about AI, because my background is in thinking about collective action and social movements. And I mentioned I, I studied NGOs before. So really thinking about instances where people resist and where they want to change the status quo. So when I was reading a lot of the stuff about AI, it very much seemed inevitable. Like, well, this is the way it's done. And I just thought, well, first of all, the data that are being collected are frighteningly granular. They're very mundane. There are people like, oh, well, people consent. They, they check the box. Well, that's not very meaningful consent. From political science, we know very much that people actually do not engage very deeply in a lot of different civic institutions. But this is just, you're trying to say that there's consent based on some very quick action in order to access some app or product that, that people actually want. So it just occurred to me that a lot of the the important concepts that political scientists spend a lot of time thinking about, like consent, like autonomy, like dignity, were being brushed aside because they were simply assumed to be okay or assumed to be not important. 
And so I really wanted to enter the conversation in that regard. I think my research expertise in human rights really helped because it was also increasingly frustrating that people were only talking about AI and, and data in terms of privacy when the privacy frame actually doesn't fit very well for something like facial recognition technology. So part of the reason was that as a social scientist, recognizing there were a lot of missing concepts and there were also a lot of ideas that were just being oversimplified. And I think the other reason it's really important to think about AI from a political science perspective has to do with this idea of collective action. So in writing the book and then getting some really useful feedback from one of the reviewers who said, what is really the contribution here of political science. I thought, well, it's because collective action is not happening. We are not resisting the process. My gut tells me that given the history of human rights movements I studied, people should be resisting, but they're not. So why? Why is that? We actually have ideas from political science about that. But one of the things that occurred to me was that this idea of collective action isn't happening because we don't know who the collective is. So unlike in past times or in other types of campaigns, if we talk about women's rights or we talk about LGBT rights, people self-identify into those groups. They get together and they mobilize, they act. In our world of algorithmic sorting, and I think Mia had alluded to this earlier, the data about us are being used to put us into what we would probably think of as a random category, but the algorithm via in certain ways that we don't see ourselves. And so if that's the case, and we're being sorted into all these collectives that we don't even know about, or maybe would recognize, how do we act? Political action is all about self-recognition and, and identifying collectively so that you can act in a certain way. So I think we're at this moment quite disempowered as a result of this algorithmic sorting of the data that are being generated through our activities. Given these challenges that you've highlighted, I was wondering if on a personal level, how writing a book about the pervasiveness of data collection changed your interactions with data harvesting sites like Instagram or Amazon? In some ways it did, and in some ways it didn't. Cambridge Analytica has come up a lot. That has been, for me personally, a reason to avoid Meta or Facebook. That's kind of been consistent. I, I don't think that there's a real way, given how AI are not regulated right now, given the level of data collection, it's really, really hard to resist by not doing something. It really is about personal comfort. A lot of people have smartwatches and they used to all have Fitbit. Now they have smartwatches. People ask me, should I have one? Sure. I mean, because if it makes you feel like your life is improved with that device, then by all means, use it. Because one of the things that I point out in the book, and I think the collective action thing is really important, is that we're just one small drop in an ocean of data sources, each of us individually. And so when we decide to pull out individually, it's not going to affect that ocean. What would affect that ocean is if many of us pulled out and many of us resisted. So that being said, right now, individually, there's not a whole lot we can do. I don't want to tell people do this and do that because it doesn't actually make a huge difference. I think the value of data has to do with the collection of data across many individuals. Unfortunately, there's a tension there because individuals are experiencing data collection. Is data being collected from all of us in all of our in interactions with digital technologies? So the effect is individual, but the value is collective. I think that is something that policymakers need to grapple with. So in answer to your question, I don't have a list of recommendations, but I do suggest that when each of us takes on or drops a digital technology, we do so with the acknowledgement that data are at this moment being collected in a way that we don't have control over. And we have to accept that. And if you accept that, then you've done some more mindful engagement. I think I, like most of the people I know, used to engage with these technologies because they were new. You want the new thing because it's cool. And now I have to tell my kids, we don't have Alexa because I don't want a device that's constantly listening to our conversation. But that's a choice. And, and that's something that some people choose very differently. And, and I think that's okay as well. In, in my head, there's no judgment of individual choice. It's really about how the entire ecosystem of regulation is, is or isn't doing the job for us because each of us is not really in a place to be empowered to change the world of AI. But also it's on company. If companies were incentivized to follow data minimization policies where you only collect the data you think you would need, that would be a big help. That would also change what is being 
take in when we interact with digital technologies. You mentioned to only collect the data you need. And just on a personal level, I'm wondering how to change the opt-in policy, even in Europe, which protects the individual much more. If I visit a website, I'm still asked, do you reject all your data being shared? And sometimes it's an easy click and I just do that. And it does get to be a pain if you're just looking to see if a restaurant is open. But sometimes it's this whole list of 10, could be 20 things and I have to uncheck, uncheck. How do we set that? Because the thinking is, yeah, it's good to collect your data unless you notify us otherwise. I'd like to reverse that. This is a personal note. How do I do it? I never really want to be giving my data unless it's necessary. And so I don't have to do that because they're making us work just to protect what we believe should be private. There are a couple of things I want to respond to in your question because I think it's important. So one, I think there's a tendency for us to slip into this language of my data or your data. In the book, I think I caught every single instance when I would have done that. And I really wanted to say it's not your data, it's data about you because data are co-created. So it might feel like it's you. In fact, it describes you. So it should feel like it's yours, but it's actually not in in a sort of real sense because you don't control the data once they're created, but also that the data are a result of this uh, collector and source interaction. Given the current situation where the government is very unwilling to impose strict regulation on big tech, how could we adapt the laws and values of our analog world to confront digital challenges that you've described? That's tough because in some ways the rules from the analog world don't apply very well. Or we need to think about it harder. Again, like the collective action, it's not that easy in a world where the digital and the analog collide. I think it's really important to think about human existence, not just as analog versus digital. It's actually both, right? They're kind of intertwined. And at this point, I think inseparable. One of the things I think that needs to be thought of harder, and and I see civil society groups out there advocating for more right in the AI world and in the White House executive order, all those concerns are just thrown in there. Are they acknowledged? That's great. But at the same time, what does that mean? What does that mean to both respect civil rights, generally speaking, and then also make innovative and useful AI. I don't know. We need to put more thought into that. And I think one of the ways that we can do that and one tool that governments have that they have not used enough is incentives. So there's a lot of punishment out there. We talked about EU rules and European rules like NetsBG in Germany. Fine. They're all about fines. Or, or if you break the rule, it's like, okay, you're bad. How about we fund companies to come up with data minimization techniques that then become widespread and profitable. But could we do that? I, I don't know. I'm not a business person. I'm not a tech person. But something tells me that could happen. The U.S. did it for EBS. Why not do it for AI? As a parent, punishment is not always the right tool. Sometimes it's incentive. And, and people really want to do something, as we see with the development of AI, it'll happen. One way to guide that process is to make it easier for them to do things in a human rights respecting way, in a humanity respecting way, as opposed to in a technical or financially rewarding way. And also because these technologies, apart from whatever our personal beliefs on privacy, they contribute so much to the global warming. If one is ecologically minded, we just might want to minimize it because it goes hand in hand with our carbon footprints and it's inessential. So yes, I believe in minimizing. And I didn't mean to say my data. I prefer not to be creating the data on that level, except for perhaps those that help collect data that would help us decrease our carbon footprints. I think that's important. There's great applications that AI could be used to collect information and and, and it has been done to see that. So two questions before we go. How can the humanities be integrated into the creation and governance of new technologies before they're brought to market? How can political scientists, philosophers, and others from the arts and elsewhere and the creation of data management. So companies do hire social scientists and I don't know if they hire humanities majors besides philosophy. I know there are philosophers working in tech companies, but let's just say there are people working in these companies. So it's clear that the companies have thought about this and wanted to integrate social science and humanities better. But I think it's not just about, here's a bunch of technical people and then here's a group of scientists like stir and something good will happen, right? And we, and actually 
there have been some great studies that show that there's a lot of marginalization of folks like this in companies, or if not marginalization, at least not a lot of serious uptake. Because the majority of people working in tech companies do not have a background in social science and humanities. And I think that's a real travesty. I think that's the real problem. It's that people working in computer science and, and data science and computer engineering who want to work on AI should really be taking some social science for humanities courses. Now, I'm not going to be super picky about this. I think any social science, any humanities series of courses will teach students to think differently. And I think that's what we want. We want people working on these technologies that have effects on humanity to understand what kind of effect they can have, both the positive and the negative effects. And not just to assume, oh, if I come up with this really great algorithm for splitting up the rent for roommates, that's a, a fix. I don't know if that's a fix. Whose problem are you fixing? One of the things that I think has been really lacking is the normalization of requirements around understanding humanistic topics. Sometimes you see in different programs that there are classes on tech ethics. Very rarely are they required. They're mostly just elective. But ethics is not enough. It's not enough to think what is the right thing to do. It's also understanding how do you know what the right thing to do is? You must understand the effects of our actions. You must look at the history of other types of technological change, or thinking about in the world of collective action, how it is that people make change in the world in response to injustice. There are a lot of different ways to approach it. Read literature. Think about how writers and artists have thought about social change and troubles in their own times to reflect on how the products you might be making or contributing to are going to impact how others experience the world. And I think that's a really important part of the equation, but I don't know in terms of requirements for graduation or for majors in computer science. And that's something that computer scientists have to decide. This is what we want our students to know. I think it needs to be mission-driven. I would hope that these corporations are more mission-driven and not just the bottom line, but what are they contributing to society? We have all these grand projects like, let's go to Mars. Again, we have to bring it back down to Earth, I think, and embrace the miracle of life on Earth. So I'm sure passing a critical eye on all this data collection and all these new technologies, you talk about the positives and the negatives, and you must have come across implications of this data collection for the environment. What were some of those positives and how could we embrace those while still keeping a critical eye on the others? I don't have the specific examples from the environment, but I do think that the environment is a place where having more data will help us create better models for thinking about how climate change is going to affect life on Earth. And I, and I agree with you. I think that we should be thinking about the now and life on Earth today and not doing harm going forward because I think it's important to live now and not in this projected future. With, with regard to AI, with the killer robots, but also with climate change, with some of the horrible projections that people have put out there. So we know that might happen if we don't mitigate carbon production. So let's focus on creating solutions for today. Like how are we going to get to net zero by 2050, for example? So in some ways, data minimization as a standard is really, in my mind, about data. And when we think about other fields, if we think about climate science, for example, I don't know if I'd follow a data minimization model because I think we have a lot of data. So uh, earlier this year, there was a lake in Ontario where they were able to pull some really important soil samples out of to, to think about the dawn of the Anthropocene. And I think that's really important. That's a great discovery for thinking about the effects of human-driven climate change, but also it creates more data for us to understand the process. And so in that case, data minimization isn't a sensical recommendation. But I think with regard to AI, because we think about artificial intelligence as somehow matching up or approximating human intelligence and therefore requiring data about humans to approximate that intelligence, we need to really think about how data can have adverse effects on living human beings because that's where the data are coming from. So I think in terms of thinking about data, the human rights lens really is focused on data from humans and not other types of data. But that's kind of where I think others can speak to the benefits of data collection in uh, climate, but also in the medical sciences. In that situation, there really is a lot of discretion with regard to thinking about how to protect patients. 
while also trying to collect data, especially when you think about something like the COVID-19 pandemic, it was really important to collect data around the world on how the disease was affecting all of us as a species. But unfortunately, in that situation, AI wasn't as helpful because the data were not standardized. And you got all sorts of different types of data. And so there wasn't enough data for the algorithms to make any meaningful prediction. Yes, I think in, what you really brought home in your book is that data is nothing without its human uh, insights and interpretation. And That's it's right. implicit in this title, We the Data, that we are more than data. We are also the stories we tell ourselves. We're more than the data that's collected about us. These are old-fashioned ideas about the spirit or the soul. But as you began this conversation with thinking about what happens to us after we die, I, I think that you've heard uh, many future who believe they can live forever. And they upload their brain into a cloud, That's their right. data. Yeah, but what I want to know, is it you? That's just pure data. It can go into another body. I'll be the same. So there's something else. There's something else in our physical and our spirit and our soul or whatever your belief system is. So what are your reflections? And I think this book, in a lot of ways, felt really scary at points to write. The death chapter is one of the ones I started with because I was fascinated and also terrified by some of the morbid things that are possible. But that chapter ends as a story about life and how we live and what it means to live in a world where data about our very mundane activities exist separate from us. They can be separated. So we do the act, there's data about the act. I think that's really endlessly fascinating. It's a humanistic project, right? It's about what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live a human life? Is there a fundamental human experience we can all draw on with or without these technologies? I think human beings are fascinated with and terrified by the idea of death. I mean, all these people trying to live till they're 150 or even upload their brain, are they the same? I, I don't know. It depends on how you assume human life to be. Is it that we can add up all the data collected about what you've ever done or thought, and that would be you, that would be Mia, or that'd be Wendy? Or is it there's something else that makes us Mia and Wendy? And I don't think we'll ever come to an answer. I think that's the great mystery of life. That's the great turmoil that we all go through as we think about mortality, because I think we'd all like to live on. No one wants to be forgotten. No one wants to live a life of obscurity. Maybe some people do, but many of us don't. We want to be remembered and usually in a good way. So I do think where we started this conversation is important to the book because how we live our lives on a very moment by moment basis right now is going to be reflected when we're gone if things go the way they've been going. And I think that's something for everyone to think about. Yes, indeed. There's much more to a human life than these data points. And an AI will, I mean, we can all appreciate flowers in their season, but it takes a different sensitivity to appreciate the grass beneath the snow. And there's something invisible that's going on that can't be quantified. So thank you, that's Wendy. Lovely. Yeah. Oh, that was a lovely analogy. Oh, no, thank you. And your book, We the Data, has given us much to think about and to really consider our futures. Thank you, Wendy Wong, for opening our eyes to data and human rights in the digital age, its implications for political and social science. And by just helping us understand what we value, where we're going, we can consider possible outcomes and ensure positive futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. My pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Aaron Goldberg. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.